0: So in all truthfulness, I was not supposed to be preaching today. Our family, a long time ago, had made plans to be up in Spokane, Washington to celebrate our daughter Morgan's graduation from Whitworth University. Um, But as we all know, everything has changed, and though she will be graduating, uh, she will not be graduating with a live celebration. Tuesday night we were talking with our elders on our Zoom call about how things were going. And I wanted to say it's kind of a bittersweet weekend, but I realize it's not just bittersweet, it's just simply bitter. Um, It's sad, and it's sad for our family, it's sad for our daughter, it's sad for so many others whom I know whose kids are supposed to be graduating or celebrating or being promoted. And it's just a difficult time. And I know that we're not alone in this, I know that there are others who are in far worse places than us, and I'm extremely grateful for, for the life that we have. But it reminded me of a book that was written about 25 years ago, and the title of the book was not the way it's supposed to be. And the subtext was a breviary of sin. Now, some of you are probably thinking, well, Paul, you're the only person that we know who would actually read a book that has the title or part of the title, a breviary of sin. Breviary means like a summary. So you're basically reading book on the summary of sin. But the idea that Cornelius Plantinga had in the book was really around this theme of not the way it's supposed to be. And many of us are living into that reality right now. When we looked at the world six months ago, we might have thought this isn't the way it's supposed to be. But now here we are today wondering how much longer is it the way it's going to be. Because this is not the way it's supposed to be. Now, what Plantinga argued in his book, and kind of the direction we're going to go in this morning, is he wanted to talk about that theme around the issue of sin. And we are in this sermon series where we're talking about the questions that you all were asking. And one of the questions had to do with, how do we talk about sin in a postmodern world? And what does that look like when people don't necessarily consider themselves sinners or don't really even understand uh, this concept of sin And so what I want to do this morning is I want to take a look at that from a couple of different angles. The first idea is talking about sin for those of us who are believers, for those of us who do follow Jesus. But then also talking about the second part of the sermon, how we then discuss it in kind of a postmodern world, in a society that that doesn't fully understand this language of sin and sinner. And if they do understand it, they perhaps have misconceptions about that. So, in order to take a look at the first part of the sermon, we're going to eventually, I promise, get to Psalm 51. And Psalm 51 is the psalm that David wrote. And I just want to read the the inscription that comes before the psalm. It says, "A psalm of David, when the prophet Nathan came to him after David had committed adultery with Bathsheba." And so David writes this psalm of response to his actions. Now, to remind us of, of how we get to Psalm 51, we have to turn back to 2 Samuel chapter 11 and 12. I'm not going to read any of that this morning. I just want to summarize that for you. But it gets us to the place of Psalm 51, this psalm of confession and repentance and assurance. Second Samuel chapter 11 tells us that it was the time for the kings to go out to war. But for some reason, David chose to stay at home. That was not the normal behavior of a king, and it got him into serious trouble. And as we continue to read through that story, we read that David did a lot of sending. Now, it's, it's language we just kind of read through, we don't pay much attention to. But the author of 2 Samuel is saying to us that it's in so much of the sending that David is doing, that he is abusing and misusing his power. He sends Joab out in the battle. He sends to go and bring Bathsheba to his house. He sends Uriah out into the battle. He sends a note to Joab to say to make sure to put Uriah in the front of the battle. And in the sending, it's showing his power and ultimately his abuse of that power that leads to the sin. But there's one more sending that is done. And that's in 2 Samuel chapter 12, when God sends the prophet Nathan to David to confront him about his sin. And the prophet, David goes, or the prophet Nathan goes to David and tells him a story. This is King David that's being told this story. And Nathan says there was this very wealthy man who had lots of cattle and lots of sheep and, and, and lots of, of livestock. And there was a very poor man who only had one lamb. And the visitor arrived at the rich man's house for dinner. And the rich man, rather than using his own animals, went and took the only lamb that this poor man had and served that lamb for dinner. And David grew outraged at this story that is being told. He says, that man deserves to be punished. That man has abused who his power. He has taken advantage of others. And Nathan looks at David and says, you are the man. You have done precisely this when it comes to your sin with Bathsheba. And the story of 2 Samuel 11 and 12 that that tells the story of David and Bathsheba is is disturbing. David, we we read in scripture, was a man after God's own heart. And yet when he was left alone, and yet when he chose not to do what he should have been doing, he got into big trouble. And Nathan says, you have sinned. You have blown it with God. And so David then writes... This psalm, And we're going to look at Psalm 51, uh, verses 1 through 17 to sort of frame our conversation that we're having around sin this morning. David writes this. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love. According to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is always before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So you are right in your verdict and justified when you judge. Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. Yet you desired faithfulness even in the womb. You taught me wisdom in that secret place. Cleanse me with hyssop and I will be clean. Wash me and I will be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Deliver me from the guilt of bloodshed, O God, you who are are God my Savior, and my tongue will sing of your righteousness. Open my lips, Lord, and my mouth will declare your praise. You do not delight in sacrifice, or I would bring it. You do not take pleasure in burnt offerings. My sacrifice, O God, is a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. You, God, will not despise. So one of the things we need to understand about Psalm 51 is we often think about it as simply the response to David's uh, treacherous sin with Bathsheba, where he ends up committing adultery with her and sending her husband Uriah into battle so that Uriah is killed. But it's much more than just a psalm about that, or a psalm and a song about that one sin, although it certainly encompasses that. But it's a psalm about basically Our lives. You know, oftentimes when we pray, we say, Lord, change the circumstances so that I might praise you. But what David is praying as he prays this psalm is saying, Lord, change me. Because I am the problem. I am the one who has created this situation. Don't change the circumstances. And then in verse 10, David says, create in me a clean heart. And what's interesting is the word that is used there for create is the word bara which takes us all the way back to Genesis 1 and the creation story. It's the word it's a word that's only used of God and God's creation. It's God creating something out of nothing. And David is saying, "Lord, when you look at my heart, would you create a clean heart? Would you do something that only you can do that my sin has gotten in the way that I need to confess, I need to repent, I need to ask for forgiveness because of what I have done, but God create Something new in me. And this is only something that God can do. God is the only one who can bring this restoration of our lives. And if you pay attention as David prays that prayer and, and, and writes that psalm, you see again and again him claiming these promises of God, please restore. God, please make things right. But the bottom line of sin is not, is it's not just something that we commit. It is that we are mired in it, and oftentimes because of that, we don't even see it. We don't even recognize it as it is happening around us. But as we take a careful look, we can see the impacts and the effects of sin. We see it in our own society. We see structures that are broken. We see conversations that that, that just simply cannot seem to happen. We see racism. We see classism. We see sexism. And the list goes on and on and on. Because we cannot seem to get out of it. David, this man after God's own heart, struggled with that. Trying, trying to be without sin. And, and the issue is, we really do not see each other as God's anointed as God's chosen one. And so we get stuck. And we have to be redeemed. And in 1 Peter, this is how he writes about it. This is 1 Peter chapter 2, uh, verse 24. Speaking of Jesus, he says, He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross. So that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. Righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. And and it's important to see that it says he himself, Christ himself, bore our sins. We think about that. But it says, in his body, he didn't just bear the weight of our sins upon himself. He bore it within himself. And so as David writes that prayer and he says, Lord, create within me a clean heart. God, do something new in my heart. He's looking forward to that day when Christ does come. And Christ does make all things right. Well, it's great for us as believers, because I think many of us or probably all of us recognize this idea that we are prone to idolatry. We're prone to sinfulness and that we need forgiveness and we need restoration. But how about for the world? Because oftentimes how the world hears Christians or followers of Jesus talk about sin is basically us saying, hey, you're a sinner. You need to get things right or you're going to go to hell. And that's not quite exactly how we say it, but, but that seems to be the way in which the people hear that, that, that we act super judgmental of people and, and start naming and, and, and saying, this is sin and this isn't sin and as a result of sin, this is going to happen. And, and I think it, it kind of turns people off, but, but we'd have to take up this issue. Uh, Tim Keller does a great job of this, and I appreciate uh, a lot of the insights he has. And in some of the second part of the sermon, you're going to be hearing some of those. And he says, really, in this postmodern society, rather than using the word sin, which is an important word, not that we don't want to downplay this word. He says, I think we need to talk about idolatry and talk about how we as a people tend to make idols out of a number of things. And in his argument, and I think he borrows some of this from Kierkegaard, he gets to this idea that oftentimes what we as humanity do, and we as humans do, is we take things that are good and we make them ultimate. We replace God with other things. And oftentimes those things are good things. Because we know what we're supposed to do and not do. He says, but the struggle is that sometimes those things which to the world appear as good things, become ultimate things. The good things become God. And he says, you know, we were created to worship God. That that God deserves our our ultimate allegiance. That if you think about Adam and Eve and the creation story, that they are given the the charge that, that everything is theirs. They are to steward God's creation. They are to remember that God is God. He is the creator. And God says, all of this is yours, except don't eat from this tree. And yet they are unable to do that. Because that which was created. Captured their eye. They wanted more of that. And what they got was decay. And death. And dust. And as we all know. The dust wins. We move from decay. We move to death. And we end up in the dust. And the dust you shall return. Because we as humankind have this tendency, as Paul says in Romans, to serve the created things rather than the creator, to put other things in front of God. And so that's why in in the Ten Commandments, if you think about it, there's only ten. The first two are really around the issues of idolatry, because God wants to make sure the people of Israel understand that he has to be number one in their lives, Here's what it says in Exodus chapter 20, verses 3 to 4. God writes, you shall have no other gods before me. Commandment number one. Commandment number two. You shall not make for yourself an image in the form of anything in heaven above, or on the earth beneath, or in the waters below. And, And what I think life teaches us, and what I believe scripture teaches us, is we either end up worshiping God, Or worshiping something else. Something or someone is always number one. You think about the Pharisees in the days of Jesus. Jesus got so upset with them that because the reason he got so upset with them was because the law became number one for them. They wanted to serve God, they wanted to honor God, they wanted to live fully for God. But the law became more important than God. The law became their idol it became number 1 and it was a good thing there was nothing wrong with the law but when they refused to help people on the sabbath because that was how they interpreted the law jesus said there's something wrong with that the law cannot be more important than your relationship with god so this idea of idolatry and I think the idea of idolatry also can it can impact our identity because for some of us Our identity becomes so much more important than who God ultimately is. We place time and effort and energy into our identity. We place our hope in our jobs, in our kids, in our work, in our homes, in our social circles, in in, in whatever it might be. And yet, as we know, oftentimes, those things let us down. If I place my whole identity... And how many people are showing up to worship at La Jolla Press on a Sunday morning? How many people are sitting in the pews or sitting in the chairs? And then I had seen our worship attendance growing and growing and growing. It'd be great until all of a sudden, guess what happens? COVID. And now there is no one in our pews. And no one in our chairs. Lots of people watching online. But if my whole value is based on how many people are sitting in the pews, I'm going to be extremely disappointed. And the struggle I have, the struggle I think probably many of us are having right now, is saying, I've got to figure this out. That's so much of it, I'm just, I have to be cautious of saying, I can't build my, own, my identity in making sure that La Jolla Press gets out of this, that we weather this well. Because if I do that, I'm going to have anxiety, I'm going to have depression, I'm going to be unable to sleep at night, and not saying that I don't have some nights like that. But I think sometimes we put our identity in all of the wrong things. And idolatry is saying, that's what you're doing. And sin is getting in the way. Rather than placing our identity in God. Because ultimately that's what we have to be about. We have to be reflecting in our own lives as we think about this issue of idolatry and sin. of saying, is something else taking the place of God? Has some other issue, has some other event, has some other whatever it is that you might describe that. And it might be a good thing, but is it taking the throne of God? Because oftentimes, our idolatry is about misplaced priorities. It's about ultimately, I think, actually about misplaced love. If you think about that, that's what is so so, so often happening throughout the scriptures, is people misplacing their love. It's what happens with David. He misplaces his love. Rather than having his love and his focus on God, he he gets distracted by Bathsheba. Jesus says the same thing. He says, look, wherever your treasure is, that's where your heart's going to go. So I think it's a good idea to kind of step back, and I have to do this myself, of saying, Lord, what am I treasuring? Am I treasuring you first and foremost? Because when I'm not, I'm going to get in trouble. When you're not treasuring God first and foremost, you're going to have struggles. And so this issue of idolatry and this issue of sin is real because it pulls us away from God. And in, in the New Testament, that word sin literally means missing the mark. Because we're missing the mark. We're aiming, and, and instead of aiming at God, we we, we shift to the left and to the right. And sometimes it's just a subtle shift. But we miss God, We misplace our love. Now, we're not like the people of, of the days of Jesus and going from shrine or the days of Paul, where they went from shrine to shrine to shrine and altar to altar to altar, kind of trying to get the gods to, to look favorably upon them. We, we don't do that, but but we do look in different places for identity. We do look in places and we keep running and we keep looking and God keeps saying, Hey, I'm here for you. I long to be in your life that's why I think where Psalm 51 can be really instructive for us. Uh, I was reading, rereading uh, Eugene Peterson's great book, Leap Over a Wall, and he has a section in there on, on this story of, of David and Nathan and the sin of David and, and a little bit on Psalm 51. And in that book, he says, it's interesting in Psalm 51 if you go back into the Hebrew language. And he says, if you look at Psalm 51, there are four words that are used for sin. Sin, transgression, iniquity uh, and he says there's four words that are used. He says, but there are 19 verbs used in Psalm 51 in the Hebrew language that speak of the restoration and forgiveness of God. So I think about that. four ways to sin, 19 ways that God restores and forgives. And to me that's where this good news comes in that yes we can talk about sin and yes we can talk about idolatry. And yes, we're going to mess it up. But God is, it has so many ways that God is constantly in this process of restoring and forgiving and making things right. That, that's how this, this psalm eventually lands. Yes, things are not the way they're supposed to be. We recognize that. And yes, there are times that we're going to mess it up. That we're going to find our identity in something else or someone else rather than God. That we're going to go after the wrong thing. But then in God, there is this word of restoration and forgiveness. So we keep saying to God as in verse 10 of Psalm 51. God, would you create something new in me? Create something new that hasn't been there before. Give me a heart that longs to serve you and love you. And the reason for God, Tim Keller's great book. He concludes his section on sin with this quote. He says, everybody has to live for something. Whatever that something is becomes Lord of your life. Whether you think of it that way or not. Jesus is the only Lord who, if you receive him, will fulfill you completely. And if you fail him, will forgive you eternally. Jesus is the only Lord who, if you receive him, will fulfill you completely. Will give you the identity that you need. And if you fail him, will forgive you eternally. My friends, what an incredible promise. We have all sinned. We all fall short of the glory of God. And yet we have a Savior who longs to eternally forgive us and to restore to us the joy of our salvation. Pray with me, please. God, thanks for this time. Thanks for worship. Thank you that you are a God who forgives, a God who restores, a God who re- A God who creates a new heart within us. Lord, we've all messed it up. We have, as the Apostle Paul says, all sinned. And yet your word is one not of condemnation, but of forgiveness and grace. So God, fill us anew with your spirit that we might live in truth. That we might worship you with all that we have. We pray in Jesus' name.